is Mike McKinney. I am one of the uh, elders here along with uh, John Ido, uh, the really tall guy, looks like Tim Keller in the back there. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I hadn't planned on saying that, sorry, John. Uh, and Don Hoitsma. Mike Reed, our, the lead pastor, is not here with us today. He's actually uh, in another place doing a wedding for someone. Uh, it was actually a really cool story. The guy uh, who he's doing the wedding for, he led to Christ a while back. Uh, really amazing story, so please uh, be praying for him. Um, there's also some good news that I have. Um, as of yesterday, 10.02 a.m., uh, God gave my wife and I our second daughter. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Liv, 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 not Olivia, Liv, Abigail McKinney. Uh, and so if, if you guys are right now are going, why are you here then? Why aren't you... Um, I have a great wife, and uh, she actually said, uh, you should go preach, and so I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to preach, and um, so um, I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> I'm just so excited about my new daughter. It's amazing. Um, oh, I remember. I, I just can't believe that, um, that God has, has, has chosen to, to make me a father. Uh, I know that for those of you who are fathers out there, young dads especially, um, it's a great privilege. And um, here at Church of Bergen, uh, we don't take fatherhood very lightly because we have a great dad in heaven who gave his own son for us. Um, so let me just pray, and then uh, we will begin. Father, I thank you so much that you are a holy and heavenly and a happy father. And you, for some crazy, unsearchable reason, did not spare your own son, but gave him up freely for us all. I ask, Lord, for uh, your spirit that you would work in my heart to not only teach your word clearly, but exult in it and love it and cherish it as I preach it today. I pray for those here who are sitting before me, that their hearts would be ready to see Jesus Christ and not only clearly and to know about him, but actually cherish him and love him today. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, unite my heart, that you would grant me the ability to forget about myself and simply be a servant for your son today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 11. Um, as a church, we've been going through the gospel of Luke, and it's just simply a, a, a narrative of the life of Jesus Christ written by a man, obviously, named Luke. And uh, the goal every week is for us to see Jesus Christ, to know him and to love him and to cherish him. Just so I am abundantly clear, the main reason we are here today, at least if you are a Christian, the main reason we're here today is to worship Jesus Christ. We are here to praise him, and he is only rightly praised when he is prized in your heart. And so each week from the Gospel of Luke, we've been wanting to lift up Jesus Christ for you to see him clearly and for your hearts to love him dearly in that. Uh, we are in verse 29. Verse 29, uh, Jesus has been interacting with a pretty lively crowd. 
uh, and I'll just pick it up, and I'm going to read straight through it. The whole passage is not going to be up here on the screen, but I'll read straight through it so you guys get the whole picture, and then we will dive right in. Verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he, that's Jesus, began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 33. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. The first thing that we can see today is that there is an evil way to seek Jesus. There is an evil way to seek Jesus. Look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, that means they were gathering thick together. Think like a, a small concert. This is a dense crowd. And Jesus says to them all, this generation is an evil generation. Big crowd. Jesus looks at them and says, you all, this generation that I'm looking at, evil. And I want us to feel the moment, the weight of this moment. Because Jesus, who is God, made these people good originally, and he's looking them directly in the face, and he's saying that they are evil. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, See this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Jesus Christ, who, who fashioned these people from the beginning, and he made them good, he's looking them in the face and he's calling them evil. Why? Look at the next, the next phrase. The very next thing he says that comes out of his mouth. It seeks for a sign. Is that, when you think of someone as evil, do you think, they're evil because they seek for a sign. What's so evil about seeking for a sign? Especially since there are many people in the, in the Bible who have sought for a sign and it wasn't considered an evil thing. Best case scenario, Judges 6.17 with Gideon. He sought for a sign. It says, and he, Gideon, said to God, if now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. And he gave him the sign, and it wasn't an evil thing. So what's so evil? What, what's so evil about this, the way these people are seeking after a sign? Before I do that, I need to define what a sign is. A sign is a type of miracle that was meant to reveal to people the true identity of Jesus Christ as the glorious Son of God. 
And when their hearts see him for who he really is, not just a man, but God, then their hearts would respond in faith and receive eternal life. John 2, verse 11, explains this very clearly. This, the first of Jesus' signs at the wedding of, in Galilee when he turned the water into wine, this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, listen to this, and manifested his glory. That's why I say that a sign is meant to show the true identity of the glory of Jesus Christ. And look at the response. And his disciples believed in him. That's the purpose of a sign. But we still haven't answered the question, what's so evil about these people when they're seeking for a sign? So I have found a couple verses that I think are going to help us see what makes it so evil about what these people are doing. If you have your Bibles open, go back to verse 16 and look at it yourself. I want you to see this for yourself. I'll read this, and I'll read a couple other verses that you don't have to turn to. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Matthew 16, 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Mark 8, 11 through 12 gets it a little bit deeper, and it even reveals to us Jesus' heart towards this. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And listen to Jesus' response. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. That he sighed deeply in his, in his spirit is this despair. These people don't get it. So here's what I conclude, and you guys can decide if, if I'm being biblical or not. Here's what I conclude. Seeking for a sign is evil when the seeking is coming from a heart that has no intention of seeing Jesus for who he really is. I get that no intention for seeing him for who he really is from this idea of testing him. There's a way to test to see if something really is what it is, and there's a way to test to prove something is false. This is the one that they're doing. They have no intention of actually finding the truth, so the only reason they seek for Jesus is to justify their unbelief. They love the warm blanket of unbelief, so they want to find a reason to stay wrapped up. I think the most common form of this today is when someone says, I don't believe in God or Jesus because I simply don't see any evidence. I'll believe in God, I'll believe in your little Jesus guy if, just show me some evidence. Just show me some evidence and I will believe. So they claim the primary reason they don't believe is because of their intellectual integrity. In other words, they have a good, honest excuse. It's not my fault. I don't, it's not my, if, I, if, I, if, if in the end I am proved wrong, it's not my fault. I was just looking for evidence. No. That is not the case. No one is ever that innocent or honest in their seeking. 
Very few people are honest about the preferential bias in their skepticism of Christianity. What you will find is amazing and that it is a cover-up. To prove my point, I have two quotes from two famous unbelievers. One is Thomas Huxley, 19th century English biologist who was nicknamed Darwin's bulldog, said this. This is amazing. Brilliant men. He said this. For myself, as no doubt for most of my friends, the philosophy of meaninglessness, religion, no religion, no God, was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. Listen to this, listen to this. We objected to the morality of Christianity in particular because it interfered with our sexual freedom. What do they, what's the main problem? Their main reason they don't believe in this Christianity thing is because they love their sexual freedom. And yet you'll hear these people all the time say, just show me some evidence. No, I don't believe. Thomas Nagel, who is alive today, he's a professor of philosophy at NYU. Got his PhD from Harvard. Never heard of it. He said, this is incredible, very few people are dishonest. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. You, this is, I know these are from atheists. It doesn't have to be atheism. You could be spiritual. You could be a religious person. And you still, fundamentally, when it's all boiled down to, your unbelief is rooted in something that you have a preference for, and Jesus threatens that. And you conceal it by saying, just show me some evidence. So they try to mask it and conceal it and hide their evil preference by looking for an intellectual fault and say that is the reason why they don't believe. That's evil. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39, same account that we're looking at today, just from a different writer. He adds this, listen, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No doubt, these people were probably faithful to their spouse. So what type of adultery is it talking about? It's spiritual adultery. Their hearts have fallen in love with something else in the world, and when Jesus comes, he threatens that. When Jesus comes as the bridegroom to gather in his bride, they have fallen in love with another woman or man. And when Jesus, he threatens that. And until you repent of your stubborn heart, because that's what it is. It boils down to simply a stubborn heart. You will never know that Jesus is alive and present among us today. He is. And the only evidence 
that you will receive is the sign of Jonah. Look at verse 29. But no sign will be given to it, that's the evil generation, except the sign of Jonah. The only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah. What's that? What is the sign of Jonah? He explains himself. How do we know that? Because the first word in the sentence is for. You use that word to explain yourself. Look. For, as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. He's comparing Jonah to Jesus. So there's something about what Jonah did that is similar to what Jesus will do. Back in Matthew chapter 12, same account, different writer. He goes a little bit deeper. Verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the sign of Jonah. You guys know the story of, of Jonah, I'm sure. Uh, as of, I forget how long ago, but this church, we walked through the book of Jonah together. Jonah was a prophet. He was called by God to go preach to this wicked nation called Nineveh. Chooses to disobey. Not a good idea. Jumps aboard a ship of other sailors. And, and God, out of his anger, sends a, a storm around the boat on the sea. I'll actually read it from the story itself. You don't have to go there. Jonah 1.12. Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And, the jo and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. This sounds almost identical to what Jesus Christ did. Only Jesus is much, much, much mightier to save. How so? For Jonah was sacrificed for the sins that he committed. But Jesus Christ was sacrificed on a cross for the sins you committed. Jonah was swallowed up by a large fish and vomited out three days later. But Jesus Christ was not swallowed up by death. Rather, death was swallowed up by Jesus. When God raised him up, Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held by it, Acts 2.24. And Jonah came preaching the judgment of God, but Jesus Christ preaches the forgiveness of sins if you put your faith in him. This is the sign of Jonah. That's it. The sign of Jonah is the gospel. What's the point of a sign? To reveal to you a glimpse of glory so that you see it, your hearts see it, and you treasure it, and you actually believe it and receive eternal life in Christ. And remember, this is to the evil generation who seeks for evidence. If that is you, the only evidence you're going to receive is the gospel. 
And get this, it's sufficient. What could possibly be more beautiful than God himself being crucified in the place of those who rebelled against him and then killing death when he rose again from the dead? The gospel of Jesus Christ is self-evidencing. The evidence for the gospel is within itself. You don't look at the gospel and go, okay, let me look at this evidence over here, and then that'll tell me if this is true. It's there. When you see something beautiful, how do you know that it is beautiful? Look at it. What do you mean? I'm not going to go over here. Just look at it. That's the sign that they'll be given. What could be more possible? What could be more beautiful than Jesus Christ bearing the full weight of your guilt and your condemnation on the cross? And no doubt, the skeptic, even the religious person who's cleaned themselves up, says, My guilt? God wants to, God's angry with me? Yes. You were made by a God whose beauty, majesty, holiness, and glory makes the galaxies in the solar system look like a kindergartner's painting. Let me say that again. You were made by a God whose glory and beauty and majesty makes the galaxies, Hubble telescope, all those things look like a kindergartner's painting. And you were made with a soul that was meant to revel in, cherish, be mind-blowingly satisfied with this glory. This is called worship. And worship is the highest of pleasures. Worship of this God will give you more pleasure than all the pleasures that this world can offer you in a single lifetime. And yet, blasphemy of blasphemies, what you prefer is eye-guzzling Netflix for two hours rather than delighting in the glory of this God. You prefer scrolling mindlessly for 45 minutes through Instagram and Pinterest rather than treasure the beauty of this God. What you desire more is to get the thrill of looking at the figure of a woman or masturbating in secret, chronically, rather than savoring the grace of God that is infinitely rich, written down in his word. That's sin. That's sin. And God hates it. So when I say your guilt and condemnation, I, I mean it. But, and yet, despite the fact that your guilt has risen to such heights that it makes Mount Everest look like a little anthill on your front lawn, 
He had his son pinned to a cross. He took the Mount Everest of your, your guilt and picked it up and crushed his son in your place. But he did not stay dead. Three days later, he resurrected. And if you put your faith in him alone, the righteousness of his son, which is not yours, it is his, will be gifted to you. And you will have free access, unhindered access to the holy presence of this God. That is the sign of Jonah. It is the gospel. And if you reject this sign, it is perfectly sufficient to condemn you, which is what Jesus does next. Look at the first half of verse 31 and verse 32. Jesus is introducing two witnesses that will be present at the judgment day when God resurrects everyone from the dead, and they will join God in condemning those who reject this sign because it is sufficient to condemn. First witness, verse 31. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, 1 Kings 10. So if you want to write that down and go do your homework and check it out. It's an amazing story. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. First half, verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. I had a hard time this week, just to be honest with you guys. Like, you're going to see these people. That's what this says. They'll rise up, condemn the generation. You're either going to be affirmed in the condemnation by these people, or you're going to be welcomed in being justified. Like, you're going to see these people. Like, you're going to see this woman, Queen of Sheba, and you're going to see the men of Nineveh. You will literally see them. And they will either join in condemning or join in justifying you. Why will they be, why will they be able to do that? Why do they have the ability to do that at the judgment day? Praise God, Jesus explains. Second half of verse 31 explains why the queen of the south will do that. Verse 31, notice the word for. He's explaining why. Why will she be able to condemn me if I reject the sign of Jonah, the gospel? For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. He's referring to himself. Solomon was a king in Israel who was given great wisdom by God, greater than anyone else in the world, and people flocked to see it. She heard about this guy who had wisdom from God, and she came from the ends of the earth to hear it. And actually says in the story, she said, blessed be your God. And these people are looking into the very face of the wisdom of God itself and saying, nah, show me a sign. Second half of verse 32 explains why the Ninevites will be there to condemn you if you reject the sign of Jonah. For, 
they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. These, the Ninevites heard a strange man who came out of the sea, and he basically said, uh, in 40 days, God's going to kill you if you don't repent. In the story of Jonah, it actually says in chapter 3, verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They did not believe Jonah. They believed God. So the weird man preaching, like, I'm a weird guy, and I'm preaching to you now. A Christian believes it's not me preaching. It's God as long as it's from the text, which is the word of God. As long as I'm doing that, God is speaking to you now. Do you believe him? But this evil generation is looking into the face of Jonah, excuse me, Jesus, who was the very one who told Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. He's the very word of the Lord that came to Jonah. He is the resurrection. Looking him directly in the face and saying, show me a sign. Hebrews chapter 1 Verses 1 through 3 does a very good job of summarizing this lesser to greater. Because these people received a little tiny bit of God's revelation. A little bit. Wise man named Solomon. Strange guy who comes out of a fish and preaches. And then, son of God. Listen to this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Solomon and Jonah. But in these last days, today, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Verse 3 sounds a lot like a sign. What, what the, the purpose of a sign. Verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. The implications of this for you is God has said everything he intends to say to you through his son. He has given you the gospel. He has given you his word that is sufficient. That is enough. The queen of Sheba and the people of Nineveh received a tiny flower bud of God's revelation. It was just a bud. They saw it and they said, yes. And in the gospel, the sign of Jonah, the full flower of God's glory is open to you. They saw the tiny bud of it. But when Jesus Christ came, it, the flower opened up completely, and there it is. And it's Christ opened up and nailed to a cross, bloody red like a rose. Why don't they see? And I think that's... It. The next few verses are going to seem like Jesus is changing the subject, but he's not. He's explaining why these people don't see. It, I'm serious. When I, as I'm talking right now, if you're just like, I just can't wait to get home and eat my sandwich or drink my coffee or sit down. I don't know. If, if everything I'm saying, if you're just like, this, I have no, this explains why you have no response the word of God, 
to the preaching of the word, to the gospel. Verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Since this verse comes directly after Jesus referring to himself as the greater Jonah, the greater Solomon, the sign of Jonah, the gospel, the glory of God, I believe this verse is referring to himself. And he said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So God has lit the lamp of his son and placed him in the gospel, in his death and resurrection, for all to see and to believe. See him and to be warmed by the light. See the light and be warmed by the light. But the gospel to you may just seem like words. When you read the Bible, it may just seem like words. The preaching of God just may seem like a short, bearded guy with glasses on just talking. So how can you see that it's more than just words? Which is why Jesus began to talk about a second lamp, the lamp of your eyeballs. Verse 34, your eye, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it, your eye, is bad, your body is full of darkness. What does that mean? It's not modern times so they can't just flip on a switch, right? Boop, light bulb, boop. They have to, like, light it. Someone has to come to the lamp and light it. So in order for you to see, your eyes have to be lit to actually see. Lit eyes means a soul full of light. Why? Because you can now behold Jesus in the light of the gospel for who he really is. Bad eyes mean unlit eyes, and unlit eyes means soul full of darkness. Why? Because you cannot behold Jesus in the light of the gospel for who he really is. I can sympathize with you if right now you're thinking, what are you talking, what kind of eyes are you talking about? Because these people, who, this evil generation who is standing before Jesus, no doubt had good eyeballs. They probably had 20-20 vision. And they could see him. So what are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? The Bible refers to a different set of eyes. Ephesians 1.18. Having the eyes of your heart, listen, enlightened. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened. It sounds exactly what, look, look what Jesus is saying. That you may know what is the hope to which you have been called? This is talking about the eyes of your heart. The heart is the core of you as a human being. It controls everything you do. What you say, what you think, what you watch on television, what you do. It controls everything, period. So if your heart is given the ability to taste and see that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, then his light will invade 
and renovate your soul from top to bottom. That's why in verse 34 it says, if your eye is good, the whole body is full of light. Because Jesus can get in there and rearrange everything. And this all starts with a seeing heart. A heart that is given the capacity to not sit on a couch and eye-guzzle Netflix, but eye-guzzle the glory of Christ in the gospel. To glut its desires upon the only right thing to fulfill every desire of your heart on, which is Christ. Put it to you this way. If you do not see Christ in the gospel for who he really is, it is not mainly because your mind finds him irrational, but that your heart does not find him delightful. It's not that you think Christ is incomprehensible, rather that your heart doesn't see him as irresistible. It's not that you hear Christ mistakenly, it's that you don't experience him tastefully. Can you taste the glory of God in the sign of Jonah, the gospel? Not can you, do you know, do you see? You guys know why pupils dilate? I'm not an ophthalmologist, but I know this. Your pupils dilate, right, to take more light in? When someone sees the light of Christ, the pupils on their heart grow big so they can swallow in more of the light of the glory of Christ in his death and resurrection for them. And it changes you. Therefore, which is the next verse, verse 35, therefore, so because of this, because your eyes need to be good to let the light of Christ in to change you, therefore, he says, take care lest the light in you be darkness. This is the first command in the whole section of the, of the text. First command. He's telling you, watch out, lest you think the light in you is actually darkness. Be careful, for you may think the light of Christ is in you when you are really filled with darkness. Be careful, for you may think you are filled with the Spirit when in reality you're filled with the flesh. Paul the Apostle referred himself in Romans 7, 18, before he became a Christian, he said, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. So how do you know if something else besides your flesh, your sinful nature, dwells in you? If the Holy Spirit's in you. How do I know if the Holy Spirit's in me? If there is a constant bloody battle between the Spirit and your sin. That's how you know that God is alive in you if you not only hate your sin, but you are fighting it like crazy. Be careful. Do not assume that the unsearchable riches of Christ are in the treasure chest of your heart when it's actually filled with fool's gold. You may raise your hands during worship, but is there even a flicker of a flame for God's glory in your heart? Like, you may do this. What's going on in here, though? Is there anything happening in there? That's why 
why I say, I mean, Sunday morning's like game day for me, man. Your opponent is your own heart. I'm coming in and I'm like, come on, God, come on, God. So when we sing in a little bit, be ready. Come on, God, more of you, more of your light. How does this affect your life? And this is how we'll, we'll come to a close. Jesus then explains, okay, evil generation, seek for a sign. No sign that we can give except the sign of Jonah. You can't see it, though, unless your heart, eyes of your heart are open to actually see it and the light can then come in and change you. When that happens, what happens? Verse 36, if then, and that's a big conditional if, if, if then, your whole body is full of light. How does that happen? Eyes of the heart, seeing it, taking in the light of Christ. Your whole body is full of light, having no part dark. How is your body will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. In other words, if the gospel gets into your heart the bloodstream of your heart, it will bleed into every single limb of your everyday life. How do you make a part of your body die? You cut off the circulation. When the gospel gets into your heart, its intention is to get into every area of your life, secret and not secret. When you try to cut off the circulation of the gospel, the light of Christ in an area of your life, no blood goes there and it begins to rot and it dies. Do you have any areas in your life that you are rotting? Expose them. And now I wonder if there are maybe, because how it affects your life is the light of Christ gets into you and you begin to shine not with your light, but with the light of Christ working in and through you. I wonder if two things might, you might have thought either once in your life or you may be thinking now. That sounds really great that the light of Christ can get into my life and I can shine. I just feel so stinking ordinary. My life is so plain. I'm be honest with you. There, there, I, I know that, that feeling, you, your alarm goes off and you're like, I don't know what I'm going to do in my life anymore. You get dressed and you, you're about to walk out the door and you're just like, gosh, my life is so plain. I'm so, I'm so ordinary. Friends, that's the type of person that God loves to use. God loves to use a plain, ordinary person because it makes him look really good. 2 Corinthians 4, this is where we'll end, verses 6 through 11 or 12. And we'll just skim over this. It's ex it sounds exactly like what Jesus is talking about. You'll, you'll, you can hear it. Just listen for it. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, there's the light talk, has shown in our hearts, hear it? to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Sign of Jonah. Look at verse 7. 
but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Christ is the treasure. You're the jar of clay. A jar of clay sounds very ordinary, very plain, very boring. What this means, God loves to use shy, unattractive, timid, poor, uneducated, stuttering, short, plain men and women to shine the glorious treasure of a son into their hearts and fill them. He loves that type of person. Why? It says in the verse, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why he loves to use plain people to show that he's extraordinary, not you. And lastly, what does it look like for this light to actually shine? What does it actually look like? That's why he gets into verses 8 through 12. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for the sake of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. It's when you suffer. It's when you're persecuted. It's when you're mocked. It's when you're belittled. A clay pot is fragile. But when it's shattered, literally, behold, treasure is within it. When people, when you begin to actually try to be a light for Christ and you receive opposition, and yet you're doing it humbly and you're taking the beating in all different forms, and you're doing it with joy and out of love for these people, they're going, what's wrong with you? And if enough happens, you'll break open and they'll see the treasure inside of you. Christ is a treasure. He's a treasure. Put your faith in him today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this privilege of preaching your word. I ask, Lord, that you would enlighten the lamps of the eyes of these people's hearts and my heart, that we would see more of the light of Christ, take more of his glory in, to love him and cherish him more for the treasure that he is in his death and resurrection for us. We ask, Lord, that you would make our hearts full to love you, to worship you, and praise you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in front of me here, 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 and here, there's a cup of juice and some crackers. We're taking the Lord's Supper. Uh, we do that every week at church at Bergen, not because we're special, not because we like to be cool and hip, but because we believe this is what God wants us to do faithfully in his church. Uh, and the cracker represents his broken body. And the juice represents his shed blood. You just heard the verbal gospel. Now we're about to eat the edible gospel. This is a representation of what Jesus Christ did. Uh, I don't know what your church background is, but this is, we do not believe that the Bible teaches that this literally becomes 
the body and blood of Christ. Uh, you, you eat the words of Christ, not something literally his body. And so we um, take the, when you take the crackers and you drink the juice, um, just remember, remember what Jesus Christ did for you when he broke his body and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Um, some music will be playing, and so while that's playing, just take some time to examine your own heart. Uh, maybe there are some dark areas in your heart that you need to let the light of Christ shine upon you and bring that to light. Confess that to him. He died for you out of love. He, he, there's nothing to be afraid of in Christ. So take some time to reflect upon that. When you are ready, uh, feel free to, on your own, come up and take the crackers and the juice.